I've been using Hawksoft for about uh, over 10 years, and I just love this uh, management system because the company itself is very responsive. They take ideas from the agents and they put them in a queue and they will work on them. The other part is it's a great cost. It's probably the best cost out there for users and additional users that I have uh, compared to, I was on AMS years ago, and they were a fraction of the cost. So... That's obviously a big benefit, but I just love the company, their customer service. They're always responsive. You can just call them up and they're a very family oriented company. You can just kind of tell the way they operate and they're really agent oriented. That's what I really love about this company because a lot of the other ones aren't. They're so large in the corporate that they just lose that personal touch. And that has not happened with Hawksoft in over the 10 years that I've been with them. My name is John Crawley. I'm the owner of JCA Insurance Services in Anaheim Hills, California. And this is why I use Hawksoft. Hey guys, it's Bradley. I want to tell you about Ascend. Ascend is not just another premium finance company. Ascend will solve all of your agency bill problems through automation of invoicing, premium financing, carrier payables, all the way to the end of the workflow. There's a lot of hidden costs with how you're doing business today. AMSs, CRMs can spend more than half the day chasing down payments, following up on non-pays, getting signatures for financing docs. This leads to an overworked, overwhelmed, unhappy team. And guys, you want your team to be happy. Industry's hard enough as it is. We really need them to be happy. As your agency grows, this issue gets worse and worse, and we typically solve the problem with a little bit of software, but a ton of manpower still involved. With Ascend, you can use a software-first solution and just need a little bit of manpower, allowing you to grow without significant increase in overhead. Ascend automates all of these repetitive payment processes so your team can get back to helping your clients. With Ascend, we've seen non-payment cancellations in our agency go down up to 95%. Teams save more than 20 hours per month when they work with Ascend and an average of a 75% decrease in payment-related customer questions. Guys, if people aren't calling your office with questions, you have more time to sell and grow your agency. Visit useascend.com backslash insurance, guys. Guys, Ascend makes agency bill as easy as direct bill, but you keep all of the benefits of agency bill the best of both worlds. Thanks, guys. Insurance agents from around the world, welcome to the Insurance Guys podcast, powered by Hawksoft. God, I love Hawksoft. My name is Scott Howell, your fearless host and leader, insurance agency owner and insurance evangelist for I Protect Insurance and Financial Services, based out of Huntsville, Alabama. And before we get started on today's episode, please help me welcome, he is a six foot three sophomore from Mobile, Alabama, parade first team All-American, Rivals five-star recruit. He is a fantastic insurance agent and a great American. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome the incomparable Mr. Bradley Flowers. How are you, Bradley? Already had one claim this morning. Boom. Bradley Flowers, I had an epiphany last night, a moment of clarity, unlike anything that has ever happened in my life. 3 a.m., my phone beeps, Am- the uh, the weather-aware thing, tornado warning in your area, take immediate cover. If you're in a house trailer, mobile home, mo- modular house, get out immediately. So I text Bradley. I said, hey, brother, I just turned on the weather at 3 o'clock in the morning. There's one, There's a tornado on the ground headed your way. 
Bradley sleeping. Never saw it. Like an, like a little baby sheep in one of those like uh, sleep aid commercials. He's sleeping like one of those those little sheeps. Scott, I was so tired. It was one of those. If it's my time, it's my time. Sleeps. I was like, 100%. I'm not getting up and getting in the bathroom. It's just gonna happen. Gonna hit Sarah Land at four twelve. We have a debris ball on the on Youngstown Road, right above. Of the University of South Alabama, ladies and gentlemen, if you are in Sarah Land, Alabama, take cover immediately. This tornado has been spotted on the ground. As that comes out of his mouth, he goes, huh, there's another tornado warning the National Weather Service just issued. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a second tornado warning, and this one's headed right downtown, <laughs> just south of uh, Pritchard, headed towards uh, the RSA Tower downtown. Exactly Mobile. where Scott Howell is staying. Um, Scott Howell, room 425 at the Hilton Garden Inn. Take cover immediately. Get in the bathtub. And so, you know, I'm sitting here watching all this. And then this stuff comes. And I've got video after video, like 60, 70 mile an hour winds and and they're talking about how dangerous the situation is and Bradley's sleeping like a little sheep in the sleep aid commercial. And it blows through Mobile and gets over towards Pensacola, 30A, Panama yeah. City Beach has a bunch of uh, damage. There's like an EF5 tornado on the ground in Freeport, Florida, headed towards Eglin Air Force Base. So I'm watching all this for like two hours. And the whole time I'm thinking – my God, Bradley must just be up pacing the floor right now. 60, 70 mile per hour straight line winds. He's going to have 6,000 claims. He just got this new agency. Holy shit. He, we, pro we probably won't even be able to podcast. In fact, I'll probably just pack my stuff up at 8 o'clock in the morning and drive back to Huntsville, Alabama. That's what's yeah. going to have to happen. And then this moment of clarity came over me, and I realized something that it's taken me five years to understand. Because Bradley never talks about a claim. He's never nervous about claims. He's just, as I said yesterday on a podcast, before all this happened, cool as the other side of the pillow. And I have this moment of clarity. What you sell down here is catastrophic insurance. These people all have these percentage deductibles for wind and hail. And, of course, like every human being in the United States of America – I'm never going to get wet on these rides, so I want my shit as cheap as I can get it. <laughs> I'll take the 5% deductible. 5% of 600000 not going to pay for your roof. You don't have to worry about wind and hell damage. You know, I would say 75% of my clients in North Alabama have a $1,000 wind and hell deductible. Yeah, that doesn't or, exist or, or down maybe here. maybe 2500 but the average roof cost somewhere between eh, we'll say fifteen to twenty thousand dollars, right? Mm -hmm. So there, I mean there's enough of a delta there that it makes sense that uh, yeah, I want to I want to file a claim. Down here, them some bitches call and you're like, huh, well, your deductible's thirty-eight thousand dollars. You sure you want to file a roof claim on that? Because it's not gonna pay for it. It doesn't go exactly like that, but close you're 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 in the ballpark. You know, we don't sell many 5% deductibles. Catastrophic um, coverage. I love it. But I'm, I'll I'm tell you. an agency up in the, freaking Pritchard. The, consum the consumer down here is more educated about insurance than a lot of other areas. S similar to Florida and California sure. because we deal with so many hurricanes and stuff. People, a lot of times people will call the office and say, hey, I know this probably doesn't cover my deductible, but I wanted to get your thoughts. 100%. You get a lot of that. Greater, and, and, greater, greater risk. 
yields, yeah. you know, greater yeah, and, awareness. And by, and by the way, Bradley mentioned they're more educated. They're also, they've been through some of this hurricane stuff over the years, and they don't want their shit canceled. Exactly. And so they're like, I don't want to file a claim down here. My insurance will double and I might get canceled. One of the best things for your agency retention is a hurricane because Mm -hmm. nobody shops. Even though they can, even though they can file a claim and then cancel their insurance, that that adjuster doesn't know. A lot of times that the policy was canceled after the claim. Right. There people are like, "Mm -mm, I'm staying put. Mm -hmm. Now it hurts new business a little bit. Right. But like we had solid retention in 2020 and we got hit with a hurricane. Wow. But, um, Bradley, when yeah. you said that you you slept you slept like a baby, all I could think of is those like old Nyquil commercials where 100%. like the the husband and wife are just like oh, and they're, you know they're red as the as the day and you know and then you know they they take some Nyquil and they're just like out. I mean you're not sure if they're alive anymore. They're so deep in in depth of sleep, you know. And I think it, uh, I think that might have been what Bradley had to have been in order to sleep through the howl. I mean the tornado that went <laughs> through Alabama. There you basically, go. hey basically. guys, guys. Before I go any further, I think it's time to bring on a very special guest today, and I want to give him the introduction that he's always deserved. He is one of the best and brightest in our industry. I don't really have any clue as to how we haven't had him on this podcast because he is a gold mine, gold mine of information, knowledge. He's been there, done that, got the T-shirt, been to the rodeo, seen the clowns. To me, this morning is a little bit like Christmas morning because when I, you know, the mission of this podcast never changes. It's to help you agents any way we can. There is probably not one person in the independent insurance agency channel that I know personally, and I know a lot of people, that can help agents more than the gentleman we have on this podcast today. And I am blessed, humbled, and honored to have him on the show today. I want to give him the introduction that he's always deserved. Ladies and gentlemen, he was the co-founder of GNN Insurance, one of the fastest-growing agencies in the country for a decade before joining the Hill Group in 2019. And I think we can all remember on social media seeing the growth and hearing the rumors of the growth of GNN Insurance. While building GNN, he and Zach consulted agencies across the country, keynoted events, vlogged, podcasted, and everything in between. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my profound honor today to introduce to you first-time guest on the IGP, but I can promise you it will not be his last. Ladies and gentlemen, I give to you Mr. Matt Namoli. How are you, Matt? Oh, after that, I, I don't need, we don't need to do anything more today. And I've Podcast already over. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, the first question I was going to, first off, I want to just let everyone know uh, who believe that it's impossible for Scott Howell to actually produce the <laughs> intro he does live. He does it. I'm telling you, I just watched him for years. I thought that it was recorded because it was so jam packed and powerful, uh, especially when you announced Bradley as, Six foot three sophomore, right. uh, su- super believable. The last time you were on the show was like early, like oh, first twenty episodes. No, no, we interviewed him Zach. and Zach. Yeah. Oh, we, that's we, right. We, we, we might have, yes. we might have been your fourth, fifth, or sixth guest yeah. so long ago that you know. Wow. I don't know. But anyways, wow. I I want to ask you how much uh, you would charge 
in order to just put together that type of intro for me, I could just play on, on repeat 100%. anytime I'm feeling down about myself or like frustrated 100%. with the day's events. I could just put that on whatever I you could, charge. I'll pay. I told him he should do cameos. Yes. Bradley's been trying to talk me into doing cameos because about, I don't know, two or three times a year, I'll have an agent email me or text me and they'll be like, Hey, can I ask you a favor? And I'm like, sure, whatever, whatever you need. And they're like, could you record uh opening for me and do it on just a like a MP4 or whatever mm-hmm. and send it to me? And I, I've done it a couple times. I've done it probably three or four times for people. My my favorite ones, Matt, are when we are on the road and we're doing like say like a live podcast at a convention, and it's like a carrier CEO that I know doesn't listen to the podcast, <laughs> and their reaction to hearing that live is so funny. Oh, yeah. Because they're like, what did I just step into? You know, they're expecting what most podcasts are, you know, very boring and dry, like myself, not like Scott. Well, buttoned up and a little stale. And that's not what you get. You guys are. Well, thank you for the intro. And and I think you guys are uh, have always been two of my favorite people in this space. So for some of your favorite people to speak so kindly about you, it's like doesn't get any better than that. Um, I really, I'm grateful for the two of you. I'm grateful for what you've done with this podcast, what you do professionally, personally, our friendships. And so for me, it's an honor to be here. Uh, and I just appreciate being part of what you're building and what you're doing. Matt, I, we've got really, really appreciate you saying that. I feel the same way about you. You've always been so kind, so giving. Um, I saw you out in Utah. I was having some some agency sit- situations I was dealing with. And you were so um generous with your time you you stood outside with me for probably probably an hour and just just chopped it up with me a little bit gave me a few ideas and that's one thing I told you we had a pre-call I believe last week and I was like I don't need to have this pre-call because first of all Matt is such a wealth of knowledge and he's so analytical in the way he thinks about things and and a lot of times in a different way that maybe you know I'm looking at it going down this road and if I if I talk to Matt about it I'm he he's showing me okay Scott there's a there's a why in the road here but you can also take this route and I think that you know speaking of strong suits I think that's probably your strong suit is you think outside the box you you've been there you've done that you've owned an agency and you've gained a lot of what I call in-game experience playing quarterback that you can share with these agents today to help them not only in their agency that they own now, but the ones that maybe, and I mentioned this to you last week, that are like Scott Howell. Scott just turned 52 years old, and I'm not in the fourth quarter, but I damn sure ain't in the first quarter. You know, I'm I'm in that, uh, you know, we're probably midway through the third quarter here. You know, and there there'll be a day when I probably call you and I'm like, hey, man, it's uh, it's a fourth quarter and I'm making some decisions, some big decisions right now about my retirement, my succession, when I want to get out. And I, and I, I, I can guarantee you that phone call from me to you will happen one day. Mm-hmm. And and I look and I look forward to that day. I do. But it's also going to be bittersweet. And there's so many things that we have to talk about today that let's just get into it. 
Hey, Scott, I am, the phone is always on for you. Well, Anytime you want to talk about that, and frankly, for anyone for that matter, anyone who has questions, I think is listening or uh, who you guys know, you know, I, I'm an open book and I'm very much a believer in, you know, giving as much value out there as possible. And it comes back to you in spades, just like you guys do. Uh, I think we're 100%. in a very similar abundance mindset there. So hundred uh, percent. anyone and everyone can use me as a resource for small questions, big questions, anything in between. Well, let, let, let's start with a start. Okay. And, and, and I want to say this as an industry, I think everybody listening to this podcast, if they've been in the industry for three or four years, okay. Five years, 10 years, 15 years. We all watched from the sidelines. We were like the equipment manager over there that's like, you know, goes up during the timeout and gives everybody their water. <laughs> we were watching on the sidelines as this GNN juggernaut took off. And there was the social media and there was the the things I mentioned in your intro, the blogs, the vlogs, the the top 50 co- company, in America, you know, all this stuff was going on. And in the background, I'm hearing all this stuff about how, oh, my God, have you heard that Matt and Zach grow by $16 million a year? You know, these crazy numbers are some of which are rumors. Some are probably true. But, you know, you've got this staff of so many people. And then, you know, one day it just kind of goes away. And I'm, I'm hearing, you know, people in the background chattering that, you know, there's thinking about selling whatever talk to us a little bit about that today we've got so many things we want to cover but let's go back in our delorean and we had a couple of things that we kind of wanted to talk about relative to you and i guess zach as well making the decision you know it's time guys it's time talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about how that went down yeah i'll touch first on uh i think we what we see what other people put out there about their story, about what they're going through, what they're doing, some of their successes and wins and the fun journey that they're on. It's, it's a fraction uh, and it's a, it's a derivative, frankly, of a lot of the effort and work that was put in. So I think for five or six years, we didn't know another insurance agent, right? right? For five or six years, we were building the business head down, blinders on, focused on becoming you know, as, as in-depth and ingrained in the real estate mortgage space as possible. To right. generate, you know, revenue and create the business that we wanted to create. It wasn't only, you know, until we actually elevated out of the business where we could actually think and speak and connect with the insurance community and start, you know, sharing what was working for us. And that just sort of snowballed and snowballed. And then, you know, social and giving Zach a lot of credit for pushing us to get, you know, getting a full-time videographer and and in diving into, you know, doing things on the branding marketing side that, you know, I don't think a lot of people did back then, uh, frankly now. But yeah, I, I think from a lot of people's perspective was, you know, came splash onto the scene. I think there was a lot of effort and work and years of, of effort before that. Uh, and then I think a lot of people looked at it as like all of a sudden it, it ended because of their lens and perspective through social where, you know, there was a lot of deliberation, a lot of consideration, a lot of valuation, frankly, before making that decision. And it was all for the right reasons. It was all in our terms. Uh, we made decisions together. We were 50-50 partners. And so we, you know, collectively worked together on evaluating what was the best decision for us, our families, our future, et cetera. Uh, and I would say that we went into 2019. So we sold in, 20, in November of 19. We went into 2019 guns blazing 
with no um, thought of selling the business. It wasn't even on our minds. I think both of us looked at selling as stopping. I think both of us looked at selling as a big bag of money and then right off into the sunset. Um, neither one of us was, was you know, interested in doing that. The business was growing too fast. We were having a lot of fun. And, uh, and we just didn't feel like it was time to, to kind of like, quote unquote, throw in the towel. Because that's kind of how I interpreted selling a business at the time. You know, and leading up to that time, I looked at that as just, you know, finite and done and, and the end. And uh, I, I, couldn't be, I couldn't be more wrong looking back. But again, that's the, my perspective. It's a lot, of, a lot of agency owners look at. Whether they're 35, 45, 55, 65, they look at selling as to being, being done. And, and some who wish to be done, meaning like just stop completely, that is an option, right? You, you can sell your business and just be done and walk off. I don't think you'd be getting the value for your business that you would if you stayed on. But some people don't care. They just want to be and, done and they want to move on. And I don't mean to interrupt you, but that is kind of the old school way in like the 70s, 80s, 90s, maybe even the early 2000s was, you know, you hung in there until you were 65, 70 you sold your agency to a shop down the street for a multiple of whatever, two, two and a half times, whatever it was. And you stayed on for maybe a month, maybe a year. And then, and then you were done. You walked away, right? Isn't that kind of the old school way of doing it? I'd also argue that there's a lot of transactions today that are done like that. And Still are, for, yeah. sometimes for the seller, it's exactly what they want. Sometimes right. for the buyer, it's accretive and exactly what they want. So it, I'm not saying that that shouldn't be the case. I'm just saying it doesn't have to be. And for us, the aha moment of it, wow, it doesn't have to be. We can actually pull out a lot of the uh, up till then e-liquid value of our asset, right. still grow the asset, mm-hmm. still manage and own a lot of our decision-making and time, still make a salary, still, you know, collect bonuses and commissions if we want to, still work towards an earnout to capture future value of the increased value of that asset and remain owners, maybe not necessarily of the small entity that we had created and built, but of the parent company that acquired us. So like, I guess my point is I uh there there are so many different ways to look at a sale. It's not right for everybody. It but it it can't possibly be evaluated properly without knowing what your options are, who the right. buyers are, what, what the deal structures look like, you know, how those align with your long-term goals. Some people want to be done today. Some people want to be done in three to five years. Some people want to be done in 10 to 15. Some want to pass it to their kids. Some want to have a, create an ESOP and give it to their, you know, to their, to their employees. Like, sure. And all of them are right. It's just finding the right partner and the right deal structure that aligns with their goals. And that's, that for us, that was sort of the process. It was an educational process where each step we're like, nah, there's, that's not going to work for us. It might work right. for someone else. It's not going to work for us. Right. But then a solution presented itself with that deal structure, with, that, with the scenario, and it allowed us to move forward. And then we just moved forward so far that we're like, okay, this checks all the boxes. It allows right. us to live the life we want to live, not live in that delayed gratification mode any longer but still continue to build something after the sale and benefit from that as well. So that's kind of how we got to the decision. It was an educational process. It took time. We consulted with a lot of advisors and people who had, could, could, could recommend based on their experience and knowledge. And, 
And we feel very good about the decision we made up to this day. There is absolutely never a case where you're going to be in love with every single thing uh, post-transaction. You have to know that. You have to be able to make that bed and then live with it and, and not complain about it after the fact because it was you that made the decision. But if you can avoid the major pitfalls, which really lead to regret post-transaction, meaning feel like you got you know, taken advantage of, you sold short, you, you left a lot on the table, you didn't, you didn't secure a good, strong deal structure that aligned with your long-term goals. If you can avoid all that stuff, then the small stuff, the migrations and merging and you know, shifting of a little bit of control here and there, that stuff's easy to deal with. So quick question. So our, our friends over at, at JAG Insurance, I remember I was down there in Miami meeting with them early 2019, and I, I brought up selling an agency, and they said, yeah, these guys reach out to us all the time and offer to take us to dinner, and, and we go to dinner with them just to get the free dinner, and I laughed, and I said, that's a good way to eventually sell, and mm-hmm. so, so how was how was that that process for you guys? Like, because we all hear about these like large transactions, you know, like, you know, Cadence sold for billion dollars a couple months ago, and how did the reach out go? And how was like the initial conversation? I think a lot of agents are intrigued by that. Mm-hmm. By the way, Matt, I wrote down while you were talking the best parallel that I have seen with what you guys did at GNN was with Jag. Those two entities, it feels like went down the same exact road. You know, they were all over social. They were, you know, crushing it. They were building this juggernaut. They had built a juggernaut down in Miami. Love those guys to death. And then one day, boop. And, you know, I was told pretty early on that they were in negotiations to sell. And, I just see those two entities as being very similar in nature as to how they 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 rose, they built, and then sold, and then that almost seems like was both done kind of the same way in terms of what I call the the new way of selling your agency. Mm-hmm. I, would th- That's- I think there's a lot of similarities there, but. Go please answer Bradley's question, and then I've got one for you too. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think uh, Bradley, I think that you know all of the larger, call it, let's say the top fifty largest buyers uh, in this space, whether they're bank owned, whether they are PE backed, whether they're public, um, whether they're super regional, they all, just like any any business, any sales organization, have a sales force, have uh, business development people who call out and try to acquire businesses directly. It's part of their inorganic strategy and it works. I think for a lot of sellers, that's also some sellers, it's it's in their comfort zone. You know, they like working with, you know, someone they can build a relationship with. They like to work one on one. And so I know at, at at Hill, for example, a lot of, you know, agency owners engage with them directly because they've heard that other people have had good experiences and vice versa. I know people at Hill reach out directly to agency owners. So there's a path there and it works for a lot of people. It works for the hubs of the world, the Gallagher's of the world, the assured partners of the world, Accushers, PCF, so on and so forth. And then there's the other path, which is, you know, you've gotten a lot of calls from different types of buyers and you don't quite know where to go. You don't know where to begin. And so you start to 
look at what the sales process looks like and um, talk to advisors, talk to brokers, talk to investment bankers to you know, determine, you know, what am I missing here? I don't want to, I don't want to make any, I want to make all the right decisions along the way, essentially. Right. And I don't trust myself enough to do that based on my experience up to t- today, because maybe all my experience is wrapped up in building organic agency or, you know, sm- acquiring smaller shops or um, building through legacy or whatnot. And so uh, that, that's the path that, you know, we had taken um, that helped us land on Hill being the right partner for us based on where they were in their journey and where we were in our journey and where we wanted collectively moving forward. Um, but for a lot of people, you know, that they had to go through that journey themselves. So what would you have done differently? Good question. I think that maybe 2015, 2016, bringing on someone who could have helped us as a fractional CFO, someone like a Carrie Wallace, for example, who's a good friend of all of ours. I mean, you know, if she had, if agency focus was around back then, I think we would have brought someone like that on. We weren't mismanaging our business financially, but it would have been really nice to have an accountability partner who was looking at our business just strictly from the finance lens and saying, okay, what are your goals? What is your vision? Cool. Let's work back into where we are today and what we need to accomplish. And also here are some benchmarks in terms of where the industry's at, uh, where businesses operate at based on your growth rate. And here are some things to consider moving forward. I think we might've just made some different decisions heading into 2019 but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed anything in terms of how we manage the sale of the business. I think that uh, a big aha that we had through, I had many aha moments, call them aha moments because I didn't know, the, I didn't know the answer before the, the moment that I did. And it changed the trajectory of the decision making. Um, one of the big ones was that I thought you had to prepare a business for many years you know, making all the operational decisions and changes to staff and payroll and account and, and, and marketing and sales spend and growth and all the things that, that make up a business and an agency. I thought you had to make a lot of changes in advance before going to market to get best, the best value for your business. Uh, and I think a big aha for me was really understanding that you could do that as part of the preparatory stage heading before you go to market really understand your business and make adjustments in the pro forma to kind of capture the go forward strategy of how you're going to operate that business on a budget moving forward. And that a lot of buyers will pay a multiple of, of EBITDA on the pro forma that you've built. And so you can kind of, in essence, get the value for the business on the changes you plan on making before you make those changes. And if you decide it's not right for you to make and pull the trigger and sell the business, you haven't made those changes necessarily because you never closed. But if you do close, you get you get an, an elevated value for your business because you've made those adjustments and you've agreed to those adjustments moving forward, which obviously is a is a big piece after after the fact. Does that make sense? Absolutely. What were some of those adjustments you guys made? Well, we definitely got credit for growth rate. You know, I think uh, we were moving at a at a pace that uh, superficially increased our expenses uh, to cover for all the new organic business we were writing. Mm-hmm. You know, there were certain things that uh, naturally you you include in your business and you run through your business as business expenses that are on that fence of business and personal. So, you know, some of the things we were able to remove out. Um, I think that uh, one of the big pieces is that, you know, principals uh, have the luxury and the freedom to pay themselves 
whether it's salary, most of the time distributions after, you know, after they, 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 they secure the profit for the business for the year. And, and you have a lot of flexibility around that. I think on, on our go forward, we were able to sort of decide here's the salary and the amount of money that we want to, that we want to have moving forward. Uh, and that was able to bring, to increase our EBITDA margin significantly. Uh, that ultimately got us a much better deal for our business. And there was a, v- a variety of other things, marketing spends that, you know, may or may not have driven a top line as well as an effective as it could be compensation plans that were kind of out of whack and we wanted to make changes to, but we probably just didn't need to do it. So we just never did it. You know, some, some tech and software expenses that uh, weren't as efficient and optimal uh, you know, as we could have made them. So nothing that like, Nothing that impacted the ability for the business to continue to grow after the acquisition, just waste stuff that didn't have to be there. And we wanted to get credit for that because there's a significant, a significant multiple that's applied to that every dollar that you create of EBITDA. And, uh, and, and that's, again, another big aha moment of going through the process. Hey guys, it's Bradley. Look, are you tired of spending endless hours searching for potential business prospects? Look no further. With Leo, you can gain access to a whopping 40 million businesses. That's 40 million prospects in just seconds. Say goodbye to painstaking searches and hello to efficiency. You guys know I'm all about efficiency. Leo just isn't about speed, though. It's about accuracy, too. With Leo's cutting-edge tools, you can validate new producers faster than ever before. No more wasted time on unreliable data. Leo's got you covered. But that's not all. Leo empowers you to carve your own niche market using unparalleled data insights. Want to target specific dates for workers' comp? Done. Need to identify brokers or carriers to focus on? Leo has your back. And here's the icing on the cake, guys. Leo lets you search prospects based on size, revenue, dates, violations, and more. The possibilities are literally endless. Step into a world of business possibilities with Leo. Revolutionize the way you connect, target, prospect, and succeed. Don't miss out. Join the Leo community today. Go to meetleo.com, and when you go to book a demo or reach out to them, put in the how did you hear about us field that you heard about them on the Insurance Guys podcast or IGP for short. You'll get 20% off. Talk to the folks at Leo. Well, hello there. Guys, excuse me for interrupting your regularly scheduled podcast, but I'm here today to get you out of aggregator and cluster jail. This may be the most important message I've ever delivered on the Insurance Guys podcast. Guys, are you a member of a cluster or an aggregator? Does your contract have exit fees, termination payments, buyback provisions? It's time to get your freedom back and do what we did here at iProtect Insurance. Join the AC, the future of aggregators in our industry. Best decision we've ever made, guys. Best decision we've ever made. No entry fees, small $200 a month membership fee, over 50 plus carriers for direct appointments. And by the way, new ones coming on board each and every month. You keep 100% of your commissions, profit sharing every year. Guys, we have made in the last two years, Each year, our agency has made over $100,000 in profit sharing. Here's the best part, guys. And this is the part I'm the most passionate about. No termination or exit fees. You give the AC 60 days notice and you're free. You go get direct appointments wherever you want. There's no buyback provisions, no exit clauses. Guys, if you're a member of another aggregator, 
and you have termination fees, buyback provisions, exit clauses, every single policy you write, you're digging that hole just a little bit deeper. And one day you're not going to be able to get out of it. It's going to be too much. You're going to be taking out a second mortgage on your home to try to get out of a cluster group. Unbelievable. Guys, go to acfree.org. That's acfree.org and register. Find out why over 650 agencies and $3 billion in premium have chosen the AC. And guys, here's the best part. But wait, there's more. Mention the Insurance Guys podcast when you talk to these guys and you get six months. That's six months of no membership fee just by mentioning the Insurance Guys podcast. Go today, www.acfree.org, and let me help you get your freedom back. Have a great day. Highly recommend them. Thanks, guys. So, Matt, I've got breaking news. Where's my camera at? What is that my camera? Clip this. Breaking news I need your help with, Matt. Are you ready for this? Are you okay. ready? Okay. Mm -hmm. Sitting down? Yeah, I am. Okay. <laughs> Big announcement to make. And I'm going to let Matt Namoli, one of the best and brightest in our industry, walk us through what I'm about to say when I finish. Earlier in this podcast, I talked about the old school way of selling an agency. You know, your granddaddy had a local independent agency, the Insurance Center of Nebraska. Great name, by the way. And in 1989, he sold it to the agency across the street, and he was 72 years old, and he got out. He stayed on for six months, and – that agency across the street got all the policies and he got paid out. He retired, went to the golf course. That is the old school way of selling an agency. And Matt is absolutely right. There is a thought leader in the insurance industry that almost everybody listening to this podcast knows who they are that chose the old school way of selling. You know, here's your check. I'll be here for six more weeks to kind of clean some things up. Guys, I'm gone. Been real. Take You, you know, y'all are taking over the agency. It's been great. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. So here we go, Matt. I'm going to get you to help me because we're going to explain to all of these agents the new school way of selling your agency. And I'm going to do this phase by phase. It's going to include my last day as an insurance agent. It is going to include my last day to podcast. That's going to be a that's going to be a, that's going to be a big day, and it's going to be a tough day. But I will not do this fucking podcast if I'm not in the game every single day. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to walk away from it on this day that I'm about to give. So I met with Carrie Wallace last week. She's our fractional CFO. We went through our financials. We talked about the future of our agency, and I'm going to break it down by phases. Give me just a second. <clears throat> so, phase one. Phase one is right now for I Protect Insurance. It's from, it's from now until November of 2027. 
excuse me, until 2027. So from today, January the 9th or 10th? 9th? 10th. So from today, January the 10th, 2024, until 2027, we're doing two things. We're in growth mode. We are in dialing in our expenses to maximize growth. We are in the mode of cleanest data in the industry, clean, clean, clean data. Because the next phase that I'm about to talk about, guys, I want the top 10 buyers of insurance agencies in the United States of America. I'm going to rent out the Von Braun Civic Center. And unlike anything that's ever been seen before, we're going to have a cage match <laughs> between the top 10 buyers in the insurance industry to determine who buys I protect insurance. On January the 1st of 2027, I am going to sell I protect insurance. This phase that we're about to talk about Matt is where I'm going to really need your help to explain the new world order of how to sell an insurance agency. Because on January the 1st of 2027, doesn't mean Scott's going away. I'm going to stay on for five years and my last day with the agency and my last day to podcast will be January the 1st of 2031. Now that seems like a long way away. We all know you blink twice and we'll be to January 1st of 2031. Well, Bradley's just Bradley's rolling his eyes because he's like, oh, God, seven more years. Right. I know, right, <laughs> right. And, and by the way, by the way, hopes down. I thought I, I thought I was uh, I was done in 27. <laughs> so so by the way, Bradley, you could almost back into how many podcasts we'll have done by January 1st of 20. You can you can back that you can back into that. So January 1st of 2031 will be my last day with the agency, be my last day to podcast. Because I am not right now. I am not going to do this podcast if I'm not in it every single day. I understand. Amen. So Matt, here's what I need your help with. Explain to all these agents. We've already talked about the old school way of selling an agency. But when I get to January 1st of 2027, the new school way is you mentioned it briefly at the beginning of this podcast. We take a little bit of cash up front, okay? There's going to be some kind of stock option type situation. Oh. And then the earnout between January of 2027 and January 1st of 2031. Explain that to our listeners. Yeah, I think in context is important in that not every buyer is right for every seller. And I think I'm, I'm really hesitant to say that the best way to sell your business is the way that we did because it's not, it isn't, it's not the case. For us, there was a few things that really matter. We wanted to get top dollar for our business, not just current value, but future value. Mm. We wanted to continue to maintain equity in the parent company that acquired us. We didn't want to have a full buyout completely void of stock because we wanted to participate in, in the growth that we were going to help of the enterprise, the business that acquired us, and benefit from that growth, not just at GNN's level, but the parent at Hill. And so for us, our goals aligned with a traditional 
private equity-backed structured deal that is driving a lot of the multiples where they have gone last 10 years. Like We can't pretend that they haven't had a positive influence to the actual multiples and the value of everyone's agency that's listening to this. Uh, but at the same time, that, that type of business, the PE-backed agency, isn't the right play for everyone. And I want to be like extra sensitive to everyone's personal goals and their, their belief system. You know, for us, that was how we were going to get the maximum value for our business, avoid regret, make all the right decisions along the way so that we, you know, f- can feel good about the decision after the fact. And, you know, we knew that in order to get the maximal value for the business, we needed to have a structure where there was a, a large uh, multiple of EBITDA upfront in cash. There was a component of stock, whether it's 10%, 20%, 30%, whatever it is, of the total deal value that was acquired of the parent company at the time of the deal. We wanted to have an earnout, and a lot of a lot of times people talk about earnouts, or they hear about earnouts or true ups or whatever, and they don't really actually because like five years ago, I didn't actually know what an earnout was. You know, like we, I, I could probably whip together an explanation, but I wouldn't have truly understood. And so, like to to be super specific and you know hopefully helpful to some people out there who are just curious of what that is. What it's essentially, it's a part of the contract in the, in the asset purchase agreement that establishes a multiple of EBITDA or potentially revenue, depending on the deal, that you grow in the future at a specific date in the future after you've sold the business. So you sell the business at a multiple of EBITDA or a multiple of revenue up front in cash and stock. And then you define with the buyer, and every buyer is different, define a specific date in the future. It could be one year, two years, three years, four years. It could be paid every year based on growth each year up to that point, or it could be paid as a lump sum at the end. But essentially, they're taking the growth of EBITDA revenue right, from the baseline at the close of the transaction, and they're paying you another multiple in the future on that growth. And that allows you, or at least it allowed me, to feel okay executing on the, on the sale knowing that I wouldn't be giving up the value, the increased value of the asset in the future. You know, I'd be able to capture that as well. And is that second multiple typically more, less, or the same than the first multiple? It's typically less than the first. Um, I've seen it the same, but traditionally it's typically less, but not significantly. Not, you, know, you won't see like a 10x multiple up front on EBITDA and then a 1x right. or a 2x in, in the earnout. You know, they maybe correlate 30, somehow. Maybe a 30% reduction or a 20% reduction of some sort. That's sometimes negotiable. It depends on who the buyer is, who you are, and where, how, the growth rate of the business, personal, commercial. There's a ton of other factors. But um, essentially, that, that allows the seller to feel like, okay, all right. You're taking a chunk of my business now, and I'm getting paid handsomely for it. I'm also getting some stock in, in you. Right. And so I, I looked at the stock piece. At first, it wasn't that sexy. It wasn't that attractive to me. And then I looked in deeper, and I said, wait, I get to continue to be an equity holder. I may only be a 1% equity holder in a, in a $500 million business, then a 50% owner in a 5 or $6 million business. But like, I'm still an owner, right? I still have stock and equity. Second, in the big aha there was I'm going to benefit personally from the inorganic experience and efforts that the M&A's team at Hilb exhibits over the coming years. They're going to do their thing. They're going to continue to buy businesses that are hopefully 
vetted out very, very well. So they're only buying strong, good leaders, good, good growing businesses in different parts of the country that complement each other. That's they'll, all they'll, of that. They'll, they'll be part of my cage match, by the way. Tell, tell oh, them oh, yeah, they yeah. need to start taking uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu lessons or, or, or maybe some <laughs> – uh, boxing lessons, something like that, but, but go ahead. And, and by the way, and by the way, Matt, let's say this to all these agents, because a lot of these agents, this is kind of like, this is something new for them. They haven't heard all of this more than likely. You're going to get paid more time value of money. You're staying on the agency. you got stock options. You're taking less cash up front for that earn out on the back end. But ultimately over that period of time, and I just talked about mine ending in 2031, you're going to make a pretty good bit more doing it that way than you would the old school way of Bradley hands me a check and says, okay, Scott, you're going to stay on for six more months till we get everything kind of squared out, and then you're gone. You're always going to make more that way, more than likely, right? More than likely. I think yeah. that there, there has to be that asterisk always in any of sure. these statements. When anyone yeah. is super, super confident and super assuring, that's when like my flag goes up. Right. So like I'm the last person to say absolutely. But I would say that historically, these, the reason private equity has been so interested in our space, the reason that multiples have driven through the roof is because it's a very solid, strong business. The industry right. is very, very... Uh, resilient and, uh, and and sticky. And so they can guarantee so much of their revenue year after year that they're willing to pay a hefty multiple, knowing that internally the enterprise value is worth five, six, seven times, maybe more, uh, at least in an EBITDA multiple more. And they're willing to, to play that arbitrage knowing that, you know, but that being said, after the ac- acquisition, there's a few things that need to happen in order for you to continue to make money. One, the, the parent company needs to make good decisions and continue to buy businesses fairly, but with that accretive opportunity to play arbitrage between their, their enterprise value and what they're paying for the businesses in the future. Two, the businesses as a whole and you need to continue to grow. It doesn't have to necessarily be 40% growth year over year, but you can't shrink. If you shrink and they've already paid a very high multiple, right. you're affecting your own ability to make an, a good, strong earnout. You're also detracting from the enterprise value because the shareholders are all carrying the same shares. Right. And so I think there's a couple ifs. Like, you got to continue to grow the enterprise. You got to continue to grow your agency, and you got to hope that 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 the multiples stay strong in the industry. Because if so, they all come down, we all we all you know. Let me say two things. Well, number one. What I just gave everybody, the three phases of Scott Howell ending his career in the insurance industry, that could change next month. I go to the doctor. I get a second opinion. They both say, Scott, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, brother, but you've got colon cancer. I might very well call Bradley Flowers and say, Bradley, look, Bubba, I've got maybe two years to live, maybe two years to live. I need you to buy my agency and I need you to buy it and we need to close in the next month. Okay. Because everything just changed, right? Everything just changed. That could, sure. that could happen. It's very situational. Right. Number I, two. I think, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I want to hear what I you would just say that every single agency owner in the country has a different circumstance and a right. different situation. Right. And that should drive their decision making. Right. As long as they're aware, self aware, and intentional around right. finding the right answers and talking to the right people so that they can make the best decision for them. Right. There's no path that is right 
outside of the path that's right for them. Number two, Bradley Flowers. We did a podcast last week on Bradley's purchase of an agency, and we went through it from start to finish. And I thought Bradley, I told him this last night, I thought he did a fantastic job of opening up and and trying his dead level best to give a synopsis of exactly what happened, how it happened, the good, the bad, the ugly. I was very proud of you for that, Bradley. And I, I don't know if I told you that yesterday, but I was. And I and I know Rand was Thank as well. You. But you just said something, Matt, that really piqued my interest because Bradley in his podcast about buying that agency, one of the things he said and you're going to jump all over this. He said, Scott, one thing I learned in that was, you know, the four or five other times I was trying to buy an agency, I was trying to get it to this, this perfect chef's kiss deal before I gave them the letter of intent. And what I learned in that was, hey, get that letter of intent out, you know, get them locked up, and then we'll kind of worry about carrier reports and this and that. What we've seen in the industry over the last two years, because M&A and purchasing of agents has been so competitive is a lot of that went on with the big boys who now in hindsight, the three of us know are, are taking three steps back and going, wait a minute. We, we kind of got over our skis a little bit. Mm -hmm. We were doing mm -hmm. some of that where we're, mm -hmm. Hey Bradley, we won't buy your agency. Uh, well, here's your letter of intent. We'll close. And then, that, and I'm not saying you at all, yeah, I'm just yeah. saying in general, mm -hmm. And then, and then after the fact, they're like, holy shit, I don't know if we should have bought this or not. And it seems like with all the big players moving forward in 2024 and forward, they're going to be a lot more intentional about due diligence, clean data, making sure they're making the right decision. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great topic. I think, uh, I think there's a couple of factors that kind of come to mind. A couple of things come to mind when you, when you brought that topic, one of one of them is just interest rates and the influence that's had uh, inadvertently in, in some cases. Um, I think I think in general, what was happening for many years, led by you know three or four big buyers, it was there was just this this aggressive push to feeding grow fr feeding just, frenzy just, almost, but just just to buy revenue and buy EBITDA. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't. I, and I think what unfortunately happens to a lot of people, they 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 almost put all of private equity in that bucket where it really it isn't the case it's just a few players driving the the, the, the competition significantly mm -hmm. because of a lack of necessary necessarily a lack of significant upfront diligence now everyone's doing their confirm confirm confirmations at the at the end you know they're right. looking 60 to 90 days they they have to confirm that your your business is operating the way that you said it was up front pre-loi but I think that a lot of them were sort of moving through that first phase, getting to an LOI super, super quick um, with the intent of just growing revenue and EBITDA, not really evaluating each each business as individuals. Uh, part of the reason why, you know, why we chose Hilb and they weren't the only ones, but they were pretty specific around who they wanted, what they wanted. They were very competitive, but they said no to a lot more sellers than they said yes to mm. and we i kind of like that i kind of like right. the fact that they were a little bit more you know scrupulous picky. they were right. picky yeah they were they were they were you know they wanted to make sure that you were the right people they spent a lot of time connecting us with managers and directors and leaders within the industry within the you know in their umbrella 
to get a sense of who we were and if we could fit in their in their business and vice versa instead of just buying the asset and paying top dollar for it and then figuring it out. Which, by the way, he was smart. Here's why. We talk about the stock market and investments. That's really what these companies are doing. They're making investments. So you want the Warren Buffett type of parent company that's doing their due diligence to make great investments because as Matt said earlier, stock options, you're going to, you're going to get stock in that parent company. And what do you want? You want that stock to be as high, you know, you want that stock to grow and get as high. You don't want it buy a stock. And six months later, it's Blackberry and it's worth $3 and 14 cents. But, and that, you know, speaking on the stock option, I think that kind of stuff, Matt, right, locks a lot of people up because yeah. they 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 get a certain, I'm not going to use the right terminology, but they take a, a percentage in stock and then the stock goes down or slows down. Right. And they're, th- I think that's happened to a lot of people in the last few years. 100%. Yeah. If anyone sold in 2022, maybe at the end of 2021, 2022, definitely 2023, I don't think anyone's lost any money. Uh, just to be clear, I think that the stock have, have, if anything, a lot of these uh, bigger buyers' stock has kind of stabilized, maybe plateaued a little bit temporarily. Uh, but I, I don't think anyone's lost money. I, I, you just weren't seeing the the meteoric, you know, growth that that a lot of them were seeing between 2015 and 2020. And, and you know, and I think the other piece of it is evaluating, you know, the buyer and where they are in the journey. I think yeah. that every buyer is different. You know, some are in, in in inning one, right? And inning one, like ground floor, you, you know, the business maybe acquired a few agencies that is at 40 or 50 million in revenue. That is probably the most um, risky, but also opportunistic uh, partner to get ground floor stock in because it could be worth nothing or right. it could be worth, you know, 30x in five right. years, depending on the decisions made and some of the macro level environment you know, factors like interest rates and and access to liquidity and their backer, et cetera. I think uh, then there's the third, fourth, fifth innings. For us, Hilp was in like the third inning, you know, uh, where they're more stable and and they, but they still have a lot a long road ahead of growth, and they can move from 150 million or 200 million up to a billion a little bit easier than necessarily a late stage eighth, ninth inning of two billion in revenue and trying to get two billion to three or four or five billion in revenue is obviously very hard. You just saw Aon buy NFP. That's right. really the only way an Aon can grow. You saw Gallagher buy a Cadence for just shy of a billion. That's really the only way that a Gallagher can grow. And that stock is super strong. Like there, yeah. there's no question. Like I, I would take Gallagher's stock and NFP, you know, Aon. But you know, can it grow as fast as maybe right. a second, third, or fourth inning? Probably not. That might not be what someone's looking for, though. So again, coming back to sort of end in mind. If a majority of your focus is on upfront and earnout, and the stock's mm-hmm. nice to have, cool. Maybe then the, the where the, the buyer is in their journey isn't as important to you. But if it is a big component and you want to be on for the next four or five, six, ten years, you know that is that should be a consideration. Sure. One one thing that's fascinating to me, and I would love to get your take on this. And I'm big on seller expectations. Now, obviously, I have a vested interest in that because I'm acquiring and that sort of thing. But you know, Cadence, and I'm sure it wasn't a multiple of revenue that they sold for. But you know, I, I tweeted out a while back. You know, Cadence was 180 million in revenue, and looking at the sale price that was announced in the in the press release, they sold for 5.5 times X. Okay, 
And I, I tweeted that to keep in perspective because, you know, last year I had an agency owner who was 200,000 in revenue tell me he wouldn't consider anything less than 4X. And, and, you know, we've seen it in the Facebook groups and stuff where people are, you know, they're 5 million in premium and they want five times or whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there's a huge delta between <laughs> a $2 million premium agency and, and $180 million revenue agency. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, if you look at it that way, you're lucky to get 3X, right? Mm-hmm. So I like to keep things in perspective from that angle. But when you see these press releases or these people talking about, yeah, we sold for, you know, 12 times EBITDA or, you know, 15 times EBITDA or whatever, my perception of that has always been, okay, that's, that's the all in assuming best case scenario they hit their they hit their numbers after the fact or is that typically the upfront what what's your what's your take on that i'm so glad you brought this topic up and if there's anything that anyone can take from this conversation what we're about to talk about is what i want them to take from cuz i think there is such there's so much danger in listening to multiples and yes. focusing on multiples so there's, there's the camp of revenue multiples versus the camp of EBITDA multiples. There's, unfortunately, some people including the total deal value as part of their, and then backing into a revenue multiple. And that assumes the stock they get continues to grow and they're capturing future value. It assumes that their asset continues to grow and they max out their earnout. Then they're taking the total deal value, not the upfront guarantee, and they're backing into their current EBITDA or revenue, right? I think the biggest issue is we ha- well the biggest thing we need to move away from is talking having conversations about multiples and move much more towards margin, right? Mm-hmm. What is your EBITDA? That is what we're multiplying off of. If I'm a five million dollar revenue agency, I would much rather get eight times at a forty percent margin than twelve times at a twenty two percent margin. Mm. And I know that might sound obvious. But all we hear about and the conversations out there is I got 12 versus I got eight versus exactly. my neighbor got 10. I need 11. You got to give me three and a half. Yep. Forget all of that. What are you operating at? How do you increase your margin from 20% to 30 to 40? Because that in itself is going to do so much more for the asset value than negotiating one or two X more in your, in your right. multiple. Define for these agents listening. What is the definition of the term margin? When you say margin, what does that mean? What I'm really getting at is, I, I think for this conversation, we need to just draw a, a you know, equate profit, margin, and EBITDA as synonyms. Not they aren't, but they they essentially are your operating profit. And what a business is going to buy uh, at a multiple of is your EBITDA, your earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. It's a fancy way of like how much is this business business going to kick off in cash that we can count on in the future, right. you know. And by moving that up five or ten points, you're getting way more for your business, and you should right. Then then you know get uh, you know eleven x versus ten x versus nine x. And I think unfortunately there's just way too much focus and on that topic, you know about the what what somebody got as a multiple, and then using your experience to try to you know. Right compete on that it's i've seen businesses that are operating north of 50 percent who if they got eight or nine x they're making way more than a business uh, you know two-thirds their size or, or two, i'm sorry two-thirds or or a half larger in in, in business it's getting a, a higher multiple off of a smaller margin so i think it really really comes down to like your operating margin it's yeah. like comparing the interest rate on an auto loan versus a home hmm. 
same thing, but two completely different things. Right. You yeah. know, you're always going to get a higher rate on an auto than you are on your home typically, yeah. you know? Right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. It, it works both ways too. You know, it, what I think agency owners who are in growth mode always need to have the exit strategy in mind. I think I see too many agents and I see this all the time online around like what they pay their people and their producers percentage wise, because you have to take that into account when you go to sell. They, they do these really aggressive compensation plans for their producers and that costs them value down the road when they go to sell. Oh. And here's what I mean. Like oh. there was an agency I was negotiating on a while back that was a large agency and looking at multiple of revenue, they were only asking one and a half, two times. And I'm like, I'll buy that all day, twice on Sundays. Right. But then when we dug into it, they're paying their producers 80, 80. And there was 30 of them. So there's no... And I'm like, 80% of your revenue is going out the back door. So then when we look at, when I figured up what my ver- you know, what my perception of their EBITDA was, they were asking 35 times EBITDA. So mm-hmm. that's, a, that's mm-hmm. a good example of someone, okay, if you look at it from the revenue side, oh, they undersold. If you look at it from the EBITDA side, holy crap. You know what I mean? Right. It's a great, great, great example. It's yeah. It was, example. Some, it was something that I would buy all day long. But then once we got in and looked at the comp, the comps and stuff, it's like, this is not a deal. Right. Like this, yeah. there's nothing here. And you have to decide as the buyer in that moment, just like the guy with the 200,000 revenue wanting four, I have to decide at that moment, okay, am I going to be the a-hole right. that tells them? Hey guys, or am I, or am I, that 80, 80, uh, it's going down to 70, 30. Or am I, or, I, I mean, I mean, tell the, the seller that their agency is not worth what they think Correct. it is. Am I going to be the a-hole to tell them? Or am I going to wait and let somebody else be the a-hole and then hope they come back to me? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And you have to dance that little right. that line a little bit. Right. What what Scott said earlier about you know these are professional investment you know firms that are that are owned by some of the largest private equity investors in the world, some of the most sophisticated you know minds in the space. They want to make sure they're buying stuff that can continue to grow. Sure. Do they need it to be like? astronomical growth? No, but they want it to continue to grow. So if you're buying something that's operating at way too high of a margin, right? How can you fathom the resources needed to actually grow that organically after the fact? It's just not, not going to happen. So you're going to reduce a multiple because of that. If something's operating at a very low margin, maybe there's opportunity for future accretive, you know, growth there, you know, based off of just organic and, and what, so as a seller, you're trying to find a balance between, you know, how fast can I grow and, and make sure I crap capitalize on the business, get a really good multiple, make a good earn out, you know, continue to help the enterprise value so that my stock appreciates, but also like, you know, I don't want to be operating at a super slim margin because that's essentially what a lot of these businesses are going to pay off of. Matt, I've got two more questions for you and then we got to go. We, we could literally sit here for four hours and have this conversation. So in what I call the new school way of selling, again, every situation is different. Every seller is different. The context is important. But the way that you and Zach sold was more of what I what I call that new school way of selling, right? You cash up front, you got some stock options, you had to earn out on the back end. I think this these two questions are going to be wildly interesting for these agents to hear your answers. So you just dovetailed right into what I was about to ask you relative to the earnouts part of this. So Let's say you stay on after the sale, you've agreed 
to stay on for five years and however they structure the earnout, whether it's, you know, some of that earnout annually or at the very end, one big check, however that shakes out. How did you and how do other agents who sell the new school way of doing this, which is what we just talked about, how in the world do you keep employees on board and engaged after you've just walked everybody in the conference room at some period of time and said, guys, great news. We just sold and there'll be a few minor changes here and there, but let me kind of walk you through what's happened. How do you keep those people there? How do you keep them engaged? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Great question. And challenging if you choose the wrong partner. I think that that's a big piece of it because if you want to stay on, it means you want to continue to grow. Uh, and in order, in order to continue to grow, you need, you, you need, need to grow, you need to grow yeah, in to order maximize to maximize your earnout. Sure. Sure. If you want to stay on for a while, then you want to continue to grow. If you want to continue to grow, you need to keep your people engaged and support their, their path and, and sure. as an employee. And if you choose the wrong partner that, you know, doesn't align with your culture or at least doesn't have some semblance, like some, you know, a reflection of your culture in terms of the autonomy that you have built for yourself, your managers, your team, uh, in terms of the way decisions are made, how issues are resolved, the process that you actually, you know, take your clients through on a day-to-day basis, then it's going to be a lot of friction. Your, your team members are going to leave no matter what you say. I think if you find a partner that looks and feels a little bit more like you want to continue to look and feel after the fact, then that's going to help you. I know people who have sold to businesses that they were really attracted by all the infrastructure, all the middle management, all the processes, the HR, the IT, all the things that were going to be taken off their plate. That's attractive for a lot of people. Sure. Then I know people who want to be left alone. They just like, hey, I really have established this culture of entrepreneurship. I really want my, my team members to continue to, to thrive and make good decisions and, you know, choose what's right, not necessarily what's uh, in the manual, you know, as mm-hmm. the process manual. And so I think it's identifying who you are, who you need to continue to be post-sale and finding the right partner and evaluating that. And, and, for, and for us, you know, I think in terms of the communication strategy, we're very transparent. You know, we, we, we told our team, listen, we found a partner to partner with us moving forward. We are not going anywhere. You know, we're not leaving. We're very much here. We made all the decisions based on what we thought was best for us, for the team, for everyone, for the future. I'm sure we made some mistakes along the way. And there's a lot of things we're not aware of that's going to happen. So if, if that environment isn't right for you, then we will support you in finding a better place in, in the future because you didn't necessarily sign up for this decision. But right. if you want to come with us on that road, like we've made all the decisions with that stuff in mind. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. It wasn't like we made this decision overnight. We thought this through the right way. And I think that transparency is necessary to kind of let let your team know that, you know, you've you've had them in mind, you've thought about this process and you you made the decision, you know, it wasn't light. Did you guys have anybody that took you up on that? We had people who joined us because we were David versus Goliath. Yeah. Right we were no longer David. So yes, some people left because they wanted to be as a part of a business that was super small, that was growing and 
you know, which had is a, totally had, understandable, which is totally understandable. And we knew that that was going to happen and we weren't, didn't take it personal. It wasn't like they left because, you know, they, they were, they felt uh, less valued. You know, right. it was just that they wanted to be part of something that was growing. that was small. And, it, and then they had a significant impact to the full business. And even though we were sort of left alone in terms of day-to-day operations and making decisions, they knew that GNN was p- a bigger part of a, of a much larger business and that their day-to-day impact may not have the same, you know, mm-hmm. relative value to what it was in the past. And so, yeah, absolutely. We had, and then, then we had people that joined the team after the fact that were looking for a little bit more stability, that were looking for a little right. bit less, you know, yeah. craziness in terms of growth and, uh, and trajectory. So, well, the other side of that too is, you know, especially with smaller shops, I think one can that a lot of agents kick down the road is are things around hiring and HR and firing and that sort of thing. You know, I mean, I see stuff online all the time, like, hey, I've got this employee that did this thing, this thing, this thing, and I'm and I'm looking at like all the stuff they're saying, and I'm like, I would have like kicked this person off my team right. a year ago. Mm-hmm. You know, understand that if there are decisions like that that you are ignoring and those band-aids you're not ripping off, the buyer's probably going to have to rip them off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that Great. kind of well stuff said. could happen. Force your hand to rip them off. Correct. Yeah. 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 Or, or yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Well, well said. I think that you also just at the end of the day know that you're making, as I said earlier, you're making your own bed. You, know, yeah. you, you have the you have the freedom as the owner to make the decision. You also have the liability of that decision, and you need to be very self aware that if you if things happen after the fact that aren't great, don't go complaining to anyone and everyone because you were the one that made that decision, and almost expect it. Not everything is going to go well. Not everything is going to go as planned or as as you would have necessarily made the decisions previously. But that's why we create businesses, grow businesses, is to, nece- is to sell businesses for a lot of people. Some people want to pass it on to their kids. Awesome. Some, want, p- some people want to pass it to their employees. Fantastic. M- a lot of business owners don't. They want to build a business, grow it, sell it, let it, give it to another steward for, for the future, be paid handsomely for it, change their lives, their kids' lives, their grandkids' lives. And continue on, continue on on that project in the next stage of that project's journey, or move on and do other projects, you know, in yeah. other industries. Uh, and and I, I think there's, it's right for everybody, as long as they're self-aware and you're intentional. So you just walked into my very last question of the day. We've talked two or three times today and mentioned that every situation's different, context is different for this agency doing it this way might be the best way. We need to be very thoughtful about that. We don't, we need to put our pride aside and reach out to people who've been there, done that, that you trust that have your best interest at heart to help you make that decision on how you want to do that. And we've talked about what I call the old school way of selling an agency local independent agency sells to the agency down the street or in the next town. And uh, they have a comfort level with that particular agent and they know their, their customers are going to be taken care of. We've talked about the new school way, the, the, the modern way of selling an agency to, uh, you know, a bigger parent company and, and the, and what I call like the three stages of that, who is, the right fit, in your opinion, I know this is just opinion, 
for what you just mentioned, which is more of that ESOP employee-sponsored ownership program type of sale, because some agencies, I don't think as many, I don't think many, but some set up an ESOP and literally the company is owned by the employees. Who's the right fit for that particular type of, for lack of a better term, sale type situation? Yeah, I think in those in those particular, I, I would bucket that in the same sort of topic as like perpetuation with family. You know, I yeah. think that, you know, you it's, it's like a very emotional you're making decisions not just because of the numbers. You're not, you know, yeah. actually you're, you're over indexing towards emotion and, 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 and right. towards family and relationships, right? Same way as you would with your employees. Cause a lot of employees become family. You, you would do that with, you know, family members. I think it's a combination of people that, that you, that you can trust. It's, it's people who have sold in the past, like reaching out to them, whether they've sold that way or not, just like talking to them about their experience and who they brought on as, advisors during that during that journey i think it's it's talking to your own professionals in your network that you already rely on call it you know your legal support your accounting accounting support if you do have a fractional cfo or some form of finance arm you know it's something it's talking to some of you know those people and saying hey here's something i'm thinking about you know what steps would you take take talking to advisors in the space you know there are people who uh, specifically, you know, advise on that kind of perpetuation planning, whether it be consultants, coaches, uh, bankers, etc. Uh, so I think it's it's really canvassing and doing your doing your diligence to, to connect with anyone and everyone that you think could help you to to make those right decisions. I, I, I would I can't overemphasize the importance of having conversations. One of the things that I think most agencies not, not not even forget insurance, most business owners you know, should do more of as they're growing their business is raise their hand and ask for, ask questions, ask right. for help, ask people that they've seen done what they want to do more questions, right. take that advice and go run with it or forget it, but at least ask it. Right. I right. think it's the same thing at the end of the, at, at towards the end of the journey, when you're looking to make these decisions is to raise your hand and talk to as many people as possible. All right. One more question for Scott. What was your last day? Very important. Let me cry again over here. Very important. January the 1st. 2031. Okay. So that is when I am going to open my Huntsville office. Got it. Oh. Okay. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No, I'm joking. I love talking to you guys about anything and everything. I hope you do stay on till 2031 because like we haven't dove into marketing, sales, operations, branding, <laughs> all the fun stuff about mm -hmm. growing a business. Cause I, I, I think uh, growth is a lot more attractive in some cases than to sometimes exiting. But uh, I, I hope if anyone got anything from today, they might look at exiting a little differently. It's not this vanilla one way of looking at selling your business. Selling doesn't have to necessarily be stopping. You know, it, it can look different for a lot of people and it definitely can, can be a way for you to take chips off the table and continue to grow, exit fully or uh, start a new journey, you know, start a new chapter. And, and I think to what we talked about earlier, making sure that you don't leave you know, a big chunk of value on the table, I think right. for a lot of people is important. They would just want to feel like they got the most out of their business when they sold it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Matt, thank you so much for being here today. I'm going to shut this thing down. Guys, as I end every episode, rewards come from action, not discussion. Get your ass out from behind that desk today. Go out into the big, bad world. Just like Make, the guy with the leaf blower. Just like the guy with the leaf blower. He's, he's out there with that steel leaf blower. 
desperately trying to ruin this podcast. Go make money for your family, for your wife, for your husband, for your kids' college fund, for your parents that are struggling out there. Go make money for them. Write good business for the agencies that you represent and write good business for the companies that you represent. Bradley Flowers, I love you. Thanks, man. Thanks, Matt. Matt, we love you, Thank you, you guys. Thank you so much. Guys, you were listening to the Insurance Guys podcast, and we love each and every one of you. Thank you so much for being a part of our family, and we'll see you back here real soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Insurance Guys podcast. If you need to know more about me or you need to get in touch with Scott, you can always reach me at theinsuranceguyonline.com or email me at scott at iprotectinsurance.com. And if you need to get in touch with Mr. Bradley Flowers, go to portalinsurance.com or email him at bradley at portalinsurance.com. Guys, we love you. Thank you so much for listening to our show and being a part of our family. And we look forward to seeing you again next week on the next episode of the Insurance Guys podcast. Take care.